John chapter 12, I mean chapter 8, verse 12. John chapter 8, verse 12. And I'll be reading verses uh, 12 through 20. Verses 12 through 20. Hear the word of God. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. The Pharisees therefore said to him, You bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from and where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. And yet, if I do judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony... It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. Then they said to him, Where is your father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. These words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. And no one laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come. Amen. Amen. Uh, Jesus continues now to teach in the temple. And he gathers the people, the same people he was talking to back in verse 2. Look back at verse 2. Now, early in the morning... He came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. So now look at verse 12. Then Jesus spoke to them again, to that crowd that was gathered there early in the morning. And maybe uh, this is the reason why he chooses this expression. It might be also because during this period, After the feast or during the feast, they would light candles uh, for various reasons. Uh, The historical uh, purpose for him using the illustration is not clear, but what is clear, the statements that he makes here are absolutely profound. He speaks to that crowd who had gathered to hear him in the morning, and he says to them, I am the light of the world. This is one, it's actually the second of Jesus' I am statements that we've seen in the Gospel of John. The first is in chapter 6 where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. You have this one here in 8.12, he is the light of the world. In, verse, in uh, chapter 10, verse 9, he says, I am the door. In chapter 10.11, he says, I am the good shepherd. In chapter 11.25, I am the resurrection and the life. In chapter 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And in John 15, 1, I am the true vine. Each one of these statements reveals something to us about Christ, about his reason for coming into the world, about his purposes. This statement in particular reveals to us 
his divine nature, his purity, and his wisdom. His divine nature, his purity, and his wisdom. And as he gathers this crowd that had seen him put his purity and wisdom on display, as he extends mercy to this woman who was caught in adultery, now he declares it openly to those who are sitting there. With regards to his divinity, in 1 John 5, in 1 John 1, 5 5 through 7, but particularly in verse 5 there, the apostle John is writing, and he says, this message, referring to the gospel, we have heard from him, this is the message we have heard from him and declared to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Christ is not speaking of light in the sense that it belongs to us commonly as Christian people. He, he says of Christians, remember on the Sermon on the Mount, you are the light of the world. But the difference between the way Christ is a light and we are lights is the difference between a match and the sun. And that is a major understatement. By referring to himself as the light of the world, he's picking up on um, biblical illustrations, many biblical illustrations that are pertinent uh, here, but, but in particular, purity, wisdom. Purity and wisdom. Of course, it's a statement about his divinity, because God himself is light, and Jesus refers to himself in this way. But in particular here, this is illustrative of his purity and his wisdom. So in that same passage in 1 John 5 through 7, if you turn there with me. 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. John writes, First John chapter one, verses five, verses five through seven. This is the message which we have heard from him and declared to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Of course, the contrast between light and darkness, of course, has to do with, with purity and sinfulness. It, the way James puts it is that God is the father of lights and in him is no shadow of turning. If we say, verse six, and, he, and here John brings out this doctrine of the moral purity of God, by describing a believer's relationship to God. So God is absolutely pure, therefore, and we are his people. How ought we to live then? If we say we have fellowship with him, with God who is absolute light, and we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. 
And here, of course, the language of walking is, has to do with our lifestyle. If our lifestyle is patterned after uh, darkness, or if it can be described as a lifestyle of darkness, then we do not practice the truth. What is it to practice darkness? Well, uh, think, of, think of those activities, those sinful activities that you would never do in the presence of another person. When a person uh, chooses to steal, uh, they very rarely do it in broad daylight. And if they do do it in broad daylight, they wear a mask. And not because of COVID-19, they wear a mask because they want to hide their face. Because they want to hide their face, right? They don't want anyone to see them. And all of those other deeds that are done in private and, and away from, uh, maybe away from church people, away from your parents, away from friends, away from anybody who might be able to say to you, uh, hey, what are you doing? Those are those works of darkness. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, if we walk in the purity and in the counsel and in the wisdom of his word, we have fellowship with one another, with each other and with him. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. We have recourse to the blood of Christ if we live that way because he is our savior. This is not talking about initial salvation. What this is talking about is that continual relationship that exists between the Christian and his savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, where he continues to offer forgiveness. Look, we're sinful creatures. So if we live in the light of God's word, what's going to happen? It's going to expose all manner of sin in our life. And what do we do? The only recourse that we have is our Savior. We must continue to go to him for forgiveness and for cleansing of all sin. But don't lose the, the, the purpose for coming to this passage, of course, is that in that relationship, in this fellowship, what John is highlighting is the purity of God. God's purity. But also, this language of light in the scripture, it's also illustrative, it illustrates, or it reveals to us God's own wisdom. God's wisdom is revealed to us. So in Daniel 2.22, Daniel, speaking of God, says, He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. His, his understanding is all-searching and all-knowing. Therefore, God is able to guide his people. So that throughout the Psalms, you have this beautiful imagery of light, and it refers to God's word, or his salvation, or the way that he leads and guides his people. For example, in Psalm 27, verse 1, the psalmist writes, The Lord is my light and my salvation. And because he is those things for me, whom shall I fear? No one. He is the one who, who gives me wisdom and understanding, and he is the one who saves me. Therefore, I have no need to fear. In Psalm 36, verse 9, the psalmist writes, For with you is the fountain of life, salvation, 
in your light, in the light of your countenance, in the light of the scriptures, in the light of your instruction, we see light. Christ is declaring that he is the source of all purity and wisdom. All of it comes from Christ. Now, now think, why is Christ doing this? Why is Christ declaring this to these people? Because he wants them to believe in him. If an individual or an institution uh, was, was proven without a doubt to make a person competent in some skill that was necessary to get ahead in their vocation or in life. Let's say, you know, let's say a fellow became a dentist and there was this dental professor or dental school that, I mean, they just became, you know, masters at pulling molars out of people's skulls. And this guy just, you know, he, he wanted to get better at pulling molars, molars out of people, people's skulls. What would he do? He would go there. He would learn from them. He would sit at their feet, as it were, and learn from them. Or let's say uh, for uh, the younger uh, children here, let's say uh, that somebody, you know, they opened a YouTube channel. And on this YouTube channel, this person could teach you how to draw just about anything. What would you do? You'd subscribe, like, and comment. That's what you would do. (laughs) This statement of Christ, it's meant to be an invitation for people to come to him. This is not like, he's not just showing off, right? That's not what he's doing. Or he's not just saying these things so that, you know, people who are walking past would just happen to know, you know? Uh, guy gets home, his wife says, hey, honey, how you doing? Oh, pretty good. Anything happened today? Yeah, some guy was saying he's the light of the world. Uh, don't quite get why he was screaming that, but he was doing it in the temple. Might be important. No, he, he, is, he is calling for faith. That's what Jesus is doing. And he does it by declaring these things to those who have need of purity and wisdom. Purity, the purity and wisdom that are essential for eternal life and godliness are found in Christ. And he declares this not to show off, but to offer an invitation. And he offers that invitation to the whole world. He's, he's, he is at the temple in Jerusalem and he says, I am the light of the world. By this statement, he is, he is removing every possible distinction that can exist between Jews and Gentiles, between Pharisee and lay person, between priest and scribe. Everyone is invited to come to him. Everyone that follows him can have the fountain of of living water, as he says to the woman as well. Everyone that follows him can have the light of life. This declaration 
about his person as an invitation to receive the promises of God. And God had promised to his people. And it, so Jesus isn't just saying this in a vacuum, right? It's, it's not just that he picked this uh, wording and this verbiage because uh, it sounded good. But this promise is rooted in the Old Testament, and particularly it was rooted in the Messiah's coming and the salvation that he would bring to all people. So in Isaiah chapter 9, verse, verse 2, we hear these words. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. And here he is, he's speaking, of course, of the Jewish people, but to the inhabitants of the whole world. Because when Christ comes into the world, God comes into the world. God comes into that darkness, veiled in flesh, and his moral purity, wisdom, and all of his perfections are revealed in his person. And how does he make those things known to others? Yes, of course, by miraculous deeds. But most importantly, he does it by declaring his word. In Isaiah 42, verses 6 through 7, we, we uh, read these words. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness, speaking to the Messiah, to his servant. And I will hold your hand and will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people. Remember, he is, a, he is the messenger of the covenant, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. And he's giving him now to the people as a light to the Gentiles to open blind eyes and to bring prisoners out of prison. Those who sit in darkness from the prison house. Uh, the, the, The unbeliever, this is one of the ways that the Bible chooses to describe the unbeliever as a person who is imprisoned in darkness. They have no hope. They are bound. They are unable to see. They're walking around groping. They have no light. And the Messiah comes to open their blind eyes. In Isaiah 49, verses 1 through 6, this is a larger portion if you want to follow along with me. This promise of the Messiah is also given. Isaiah 49, verses 1 through 6. Isaiah 49, beginning at verse 1. Listen, O coastlands, to me, and take heed, you peoples, from afar. For the Lord has called me from the womb, from the matrix of my mother. He has made mention of my name. His name shall be Emmanuel, God with us. And he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he has hidden me and made me a polished shaft. 
In his quiver, he has hidden me. This is, you know, the imagery here is just so beautiful to describe Christ as he is God's special weapon in accomplishing his purposes. He has said to me, you are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But wait a minute, he's speaking to the Messiah. Why does he call him Israel? Then I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing. And in vain, yet surely my just reward is with the Lord. And my work is with my God. And now the Lord says who formed me from the womb to be his servant. Remember, he just called him Israel. He formed him for what purpose? To bring Jacob back to him so that Israel is gathered to him. So this one who is his servant is Israel, but is not the nation of Israel. This is the Messiah. For I shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord. And my God shall be my strength. Indeed, he says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore and preserve the preserved ones of Israel. It's, it's, it's too small a thing. This special weapon, this one who, who I have formed in the matrix of his mother's womb, who I've known his name from eternity, this one that shall be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, it would be too small a thing if I just sent him to save one nation. That would not be sufficient. I will give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. This light was the Messiah. And this light, particularly in these passages, it says, is for us, for the Gentiles. This is a promise that God has made to all peoples. Jesus is the light of the world. And everyone who looks to him in faith can have that light. And children, as you sit here today, you have important decisions to make. Will you love God? Will you honor your father and your mother? Bigger questions, like what will I do with my life? God promises in the person of his son that all of the forgiveness you need and all of the wisdom you need to make difficult decisions can be found by believing in his son. All of the pressures that will crash in upon you or are crushing you even now, temptations to sin, they can become apparent to you. You can see them. They can be exposed in the light of Christ and they can be overcome by the wisdom that he gives. This is why Christ came into the world. And if you think, well, I don't feel the need or the desire to come to him, that is because you are in the darkness and Jesus would call you to come to the light. 
When, when you're young, you know, once I was young, and when I was young, as I think all young people, we think that we can do many things or anything, like uh, ride a bike without any help. You see a bike, you're like, I could ride that thing. Not easy, easy peasy, lemon squeezy. And you get on the bike and you almost kill yourself, right? <laughs> or whatever it might be, right? You see someone drawing, you see someone dancing, you hear someone singing, you see someone playing sports, and immediately you think that you can do that. But it is not until someone teaches you that you realize how little you actually know. And for young people, this is what attempting to follow Christ is like. As you attempt to follow Jesus, you realize, boy, I cannot keep these commandments. They are a very hard thing for me. And what that does is it exposes your need for him more and more. That's why Jesus offers himself in this way. That's why he says, follow me. I am the light of the world. He who follows me. And this is our duty. This is what we must do. But listen to how he words this. It's very interesting here. He says, he who follows me, that's, that's present tense now. He who follows me, and of course he's speaking to his audience then, and through his inspired word, he speaks to everyone here today. He says, he who follows me now, that person, he who follows me, shall not walk in darkness. That's a future promise. You shall not walk in darkness, but you shall have the light of life. And in the Bible... When you have future tenses, you know, uh, a, a verb that describes something in the future, it's used as a means of communicating a promise. So what Jesus is saying here, that if you follow me, I promise that you will not walk in darkness, but you will have the light of life. That is a promise Jesus is giving to his people. Now, that's not a promise of sinless perfection, it's not a promise of a problem-free and a trouble-free life. It's a promise that the moral purity and the wisdom that you need, which are found in Jesus, will be yours. So that as you navigate through the valley of the shadow of death, you have no need to fear, for God is with you. His rod and his staff will comfort you. And of course, following means... Trusting and putting our faith in him. And throughout the scriptures, when this language is used of following Jesus, it always implies more than just believing facts. It's not just believing facts. That's not what following Jesus means. Listen to some of Jesus' statements. We'll, we'll look at some statements in the Gospel of John first, and then we'll take a look at two in Matthew. Look at John 10, 27. He says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, 
and they follow me. They they follow me. This is not just they uh, hear my voice, they know certain truths, they believe them. No, this is they, they follow after their Savior. They follow after him. Look at 1226 in connection with this statement. 1226. John. I'll I'll read from verse 23. Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. He's going to be crucified. That's what he means by this glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it. If, if you love your life now so much that the pursuit of life becomes peace, comfort, and personal joy, you're going to lose your life. If you think about it, let, let's say in God's grace, he gives you 125 years on this planet, and your hips don't hurt and your knees never fail, right? So you're, you're mobile, and you're, you're doing good. And every time somebody sees you, they tell you, man, you look 80, right? And you fall asleep one night, and you, you go to heaven. Or you, let's say you fall asleep and die. Well, that 125 years is just going to be a blip in your existence because we have never dying souls. We will live forever in heaven or in hell, one or the other. So if you love your life now, you're going to lose it. But he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. This is, doesn't mean, this is not warrant to be a miserable person. You know the two Muppets from, uh, the two old men Muppets from the Muppet movie that are always complaining, the two grouchy old men, and Oscar the Grouch is kind of like this. It doesn't mean that. What he means is that you, there is a very true sense where the, where the Christian Loves his life because he lives it for God. And all of his imperfections aside, he loves what God has given him. He learns how to be joyful in every circumstance. But then there's this other aspect of the Christian life where I really hate it here. And I can't wait to go to heaven. He who loves his life will lose it. And he who... uh, he, He who hates his life in this world, will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, right? What, what, what does a servant, this, this is the language of servants. Do, do, does a servant just think that his master is his master, but doesn't act upon it? Is that the way a servant lives? No. You live like a servant. You serve. If you walked into work and your boss said to you, hey, you know, I need those papers or whatever it is that you do at work. I don't know. Whatever, right? Widgets, cases, bookshelves. I don't know. Whatever you do at work. If your boss said to you, do this, and you acknowledged, yeah, this is the guy who's the manager. This is the gal who's the boss, the owner of the company, 
whatever. I acknowledge that that's who they are. And I acknowledge and I understand what they're saying. I'm not going to do it. What happens? Well, if, if you've got no tenure, you eventually get fired. <laughs> you get fired, right? Be- because you're not following. You're not a servant. And this is the way that Jesus chooses to describe his followers. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. Now look at these two texts in Matthew. Matthew 16, 24. I did that in John to show you that the language is, this, this language that following means more than just believing stuff about Jesus, uh, going to church maybe. It, it means more than just um, believing some bare facts. You know, having a Jesus bumper sticker. Uh, it means more than that. But in, in, the, math, in um, the Gospel of Matthew, in verse uh, 16, chapter 16, verse 24, excuse me, 16, 24, Jesus says this. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. What, what, uh, what does that mean, De- deny yourself? You know, Greek words don't have like magical special meanings. And most, I, I'm, I, I would probably say every one of your translations says deny because it means to deny yourself and and we all know what that means right you're you're at a at a you're at a fellowship or at a potluck and you're looking at your waist and you're thinking to yourself you know that's a couple notches more than i would like on my belt and there's a piece of some brownie that you might like maybe or some you know cookies maybe and you say to yourself i'm going to deny myself which means I'm not going to have any. I'm going to use self-control and restraint. Now, of course, this is grace-empowered and self This is not just gritting your teeth. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. This is a fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, self-control. But you deny yourself, your wants, your desires, your needs. You take up your cross and you follow him. Whoever looks into the language, how similar it is to what Jesus says in John. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But he who loses his life for my sake will find it. And that, that's, that's the truth there. The person who follows Jesus must be willing to lose everything to follow Christ. And this is, this is what Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, called costly grace. Not because it costs you personally anything to receive the grace of God, but that once you have truly received it, it costs you something because you live differently, because you follow Jesus. Matthew 19, well, we'll skip Matthew 19, 21. I think the point is made. The person who says that I'm a Christian, but does not put their faith, but there's no action to their faith. There's no walking in the light. There's no renouncing darkness. That person is a liar. You're not a Christian. That's what John says in 1 John. 
In that text that we were just reading, 1 John 5 and following, at verse 8, John says this, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. If, if, if somebody says to you, oh, I'm sinlessly perfect, I've never sinned. You know, uh, uh, one man said that to Charles Spurgeon, and Charles Spurgeon stomped on his foot and was going to you know, attack him. And he said, I thought you were sinless. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, uh, but if we say, right, so, so here, this is just beautiful um, biblical truth. Put side by side here. If a person says that they have no sin, you deceive yourselves, and the truth is not in you. you you've not really understood the gospel, if that's what you say. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Right. So we, we live as Christian people knowing that we sin. And because of that, God has given us a faithful advocate, the Lord Jesus. Now look at verse 10, though. These truths side by side are very important. If we say that we have not sinned at all, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So if a person says, right, I'm, I'm sinlessly perfect, I have no sin at all, or if a person says, I've not committed any sin, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Now, you see those two truths put together there. Now look back at what uh, he says in the previous verses, beginning at verse 6. So, again, this is not sinless perfection. There, there is need for forgiveness. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. If we walk in the light as he is in the light... We have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So the Christian can admit and does on a daily basis confess his sin to God. He needs forgiveness. But this Christian does not live or practice sin or live in a practice of sinning. If we do that, we lie and we do not practice the truth. That's why Jesus says... He who follows me shall not walk in darkness. That will not be the practice of his life. We will believe his doctrines, but we will also obey his commands. We will live according to the way that he directs us and according to the example he leaves us. Now, you might be thinking to, I don't know, maybe some of you might be thinking to yourself, <coughs> Pastor, I live in the real world. You know, you're shut up in your house with your Bible and your books, and you're far away from sin and temptation, and you have no idea what it's like living in our world today. Right? And doesn't the Bible say that grace covers a multitude of sins? Right? The Bible says that. And uh, aren't you reformed, pastor? Right? Don't you believe in the solas of the Reformation? Right? By faith alone, by grace alone, by Christ alone. Right? What are you pushing all of this obedience and following Jesus stuff for? 
Isn't, isn't that just one way of Jesus teaching? Isn't that just the way that te- Jesus teaches us that we're morally flawed and we need a Savior when he uses these commands? No, not at all. And uh, Mr. Reformation himself, Martin Luther, uh, did not believe or teach that. What does believing in faith alone and that salvation is by faith alone, through grace alone, and in Christ alone, what does that do in the life of a person? Listen to Bonhoeffer's assessment of of Martin Luther. This is, I have uh, four paragraphs here, but they're not very long, and they are helpful. When the Reformation came, the providence of God raised Martin Luther to restore the pure gospel of costly grace. Luther passed through the cloister. That, that's, uh, that's the language of when a person lives in a monastery. So he was a monk. He passed through the cloister, and all this was part of the divine plan. So this is before Luther was converted. He, uh, he was in a very serious storm, and he prayed to God, and he said, God, if you save me, I'll become a monk. God saved him through that storm. He actually prayed to a saint, and I can't remember the name of the saint. And he became a monk. The call to the cloister, the call to be a monk, demanded of Luther the complete surrender of his life. And some people think that way. You know, they they become Christians, and there is some moral reformation, and there are some things that they have to leave, things that they have to put off, right? Ways, right? I can't swear like I used to. I can't chew tobacco and get into fist fights, and I can't do any of that stuff anymore. So there's some things that Luther had to give up. But God shattered all his hopes. He showed him through the scriptures that following Christ is not the achievement of merit, but the divine command to all Christians without distinction. So Luther learned in studying the Bible, wait a minute, I'm shut up here in this monastery with no contact to the world But this is not what it means to be godly. And the call to be godly is not just for us monks who are starving ourselves and freezing ourselves to death. The monks attempt to flee from the world. Because that's what he was trying to do. Was a subtle form of loving the world. And for some of us, Christianity may be, you know, our form of Christianity may be our way of loving the world. It's not the real thing because we don't really follow Jesus. The only way to follow Jesus was by living in the world. Not being of the world, but living in the world. The commandment of Jesus must be accorded perfect obedience in one's daily vocation of life, in your calling, wherever it is you're called. You're called, right? So you're called to be a husband and a father and a plumber and a neighbor and a safe driver and so on and so forth. You're called to all of these things. And it is there where obedience must be manifest. The conflict between the life of the Christian and the life of the world was thrown into the sharpest possible relief. It was a hand-to-hand conflict between the Christian and the world. 
You have to ask yourself, is that the way that I live? Is there a conflict? Is there real conflict in my life? Or is this just a facade? It is a fatal misunderstanding of Luther's action to suppose that his recovery of the gospel of pure grace offered a general dispensation from obedience to the commands of Jesus. Right? And that's what people think. Well, they, they make a profession, they get baptized, they join a church, maybe they were baptized when they were little, whatever it might be. And that's it. Now I live the rest of my life according to my own whims. Now I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to live a scandalous life. You know, God forbid I do that. But I'm not going to really follow Jesus this way. You know, this is, it's too much. Or that it was the great discovery. Oh, let me, let me back up. Uh, it is a fatal understand, misunderstanding of Luther's action to suppose that his rediscovery of the gospel of pure grace offered a general dispensation from obedience to the commands of Jesus. It doesn't. Or that it was the great discovery of the Reformation that God's forgiving grace automatically conferred upon the world both righteousness and holiness. Look, if you have never uh, repented of your sins, believed that, G- believed that Christ came into the world to die for sinners, to satisfy God's wrath for you, and have turned from your sins, if that's never happened, you are not righteous and holy in God's sight. You don't have that. You don't have righteousness and holiness. And I don't mean your own righteousness and holiness. I mean the righteousness and holiness that only Jesus can give. You don't have it. It was not the justification of sin, but the justification of the sinner that drove Luther from the cloister back into the world. It, it, it pushed him out of the monastery. It pushed him out of his religiosity. He said, I can't live like a hypocrite anymore when he discovered the grace of God in the scriptures. The grace he had received was costly grace. It was grace for it was like water on parched ground, comfort in tribulation, freedom from the bondage of self of a self-chosen way, and forgiveness of all his sins. It was real grace. He was forgiven for all of his sins. He understood the grace that is found in Christ Jesus. And it was costly. For so far from dispensing him from good works, it meant that he must take the call to discipleship so seriously and more seriously than ever before. It was grace because it cost so much. It cost so much because it was grace. That was the secret of the gospel of the Reformation, the justification of the sinner. And this is exactly what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Moral purity and wisdom that you need to live in this world can be found in me, but you must follow me. You must follow me. He is calling you this morning to follow him. 
And if you are following him, he's calling you to continue to follow him. And if you follow Jesus, you will depart from darkness and have the light of life. Jesus says in John 1, 12, excuse me, 8, 12. In John 8, 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. That person will have the life-giving light. That's what he means there. In John 1.9, John uh, writing about Jesus says that that was the true light, referring to Jesus, which gives light to every man coming into the world. This is who Jesus is. He is the light of the world. And all who have Jesus have this light of life, this life-giving light, the light-giving purity and wisdom that comes from Christ. The promise of Christ, the light of the world, to everyone who follows him is that they will not walk in darkness, but have the life-giving light. If you do not have that, Jesus calls you to follow him today. He gives it freely. It costs you nothing, but it costs you everything. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. And we confess, Lord, that by nature, we know that we are worshipers. And the great question that is set before us is, who will we worship? Will we walk in darkness or will we walk in light? Open our eyes, Lord, and help us to see the truth of the gospel. Reconcile us uh, to yourself through your Son, Enable us, Lord, to worship you in spirit and in truth. In Christ's name we pray, amen.